Chapter Nineteen of The Virginian. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Virginian by Owen Wister. Chapter Nineteen. Doctor McBride begs pardon. Judge and Mrs. Henry, Molly Wood, and two strangers, a lady and a gentleman, were the party which had been driving in the large three-seated wagon. They had seemed a merry party, but as I came within hearing of their talk, it was a fragment of the minister's sonority which reached me first. More opportunity for them to have the benefit of hearing frequent sermons, was the sentence I heard him bring to completion. "'Yes, to be sure, sir. Judge Henry gave me, it almost seemed, additional warmth of welcome for arriving to break up the present discourse.' Let me introduce you to the Reverend Dr. Alexander McBride. Doctor, another guest we have been hoping for about this time, was my host's cordial explanation to him of me. There remained the gentleman with his wife from New York, and to these I made my final bows, but I had not broken up the discourse. We may be said to have met already. Dr. McBride had fixed upon me his full mastering eye, and it occurred to me that if they had policemen in heaven, he would be at least a centurion in the force. But he did not mean to be unpleasant. It was only that in a mind full of matters less worldly, pleasure was left out. "'I observed your friend was a skillful horseman,' he continued. "'I was saying to Judge Henry that I could wish such skillful horsemen might ride to a church upon the Sabbath.' a church, that is, of right doctrine, where they would have opportunity to hear frequent sermons. "'Yes,' said Judge Henry, "'yes, it would be a good thing.' Mrs. Henry, with some murmur about the kitchen, here went into the house. "'I was informed,' Dr. McBride held the rest of us, "'before undertaking my journey that I should find a desolate and mainly godless country.' but nobody gave me to understand that from Medicine Bow I was to drive three hundred miles and pass no church of any faith. The judge explained that there had been a few a long way to the right and left of him. Still, he conceded, you are quite right, but don't forget that this is the newest part of a new world. Judge, said his wife, coming to the door, how can you keep them standing in the dust with your talking? This most efficiently did break up the discourse. As our little party, with the smiles and the polite holdings back of new acquaintanceship, moved into the house, the judge detained me behind all of them long enough to whisper dolorously, He's going to stay a whole week. I had hopes that he would not stay a whole week when I presently learned of the crowded arrangements which our hosts, with many hospitable apologies, disclosed to us. They were delighted to have us, but they hadn't foreseen that we should all be simultaneous. The foreman's house had been prepared for two of us, and did we mind? The two of us were Dr. McBride and myself, and I expected him to mind. But I wronged him grossly. It would be much better, he assured Mrs. Henry, than straw in a stable, which he had tried several times and was quite ready for. So I saw that though he kept his vigorous body clean when he could, he cared nothing for it in the face of his mission. 
how the foreman and his wife relished being turned out during a week, for a missionary and myself was not my concern, although while he and I made ready for supper over there it struck me as hard on them. The room, with its two cots and furniture, was as nice as possible, and we closed the door upon the adjoining room, which, however, seemed also untenanted. Mrs. Henry gave us a meal so good that I have remembered it, and her husband the judge strove his best that we should eat it in merriment. He poured out his anecdotes like wine, and we should have quickly warmed to them, but Dr. McBride sat among us, giving occasional heavy ha-has, which produced, as Miss Molly Wood whispered to me, a dreadly cavernous effect. Was it his sermon, we wondered, that he was thinking over? I told her of the copious sheaf of them I had seen him pull from his wallet over at the foreman's. "'Goodness,' said she, "'then are we to hear one every evening?' This I doubted. He had probably been picking one out suitable for the occasion. "'Putting his best foot foremost,' was her comment. "'I suppose they have best feet, like the rest of us.' Then she grew delightfully sharp. Do you know, when I first heard him, I thought his voice was hearty. But if you listen, you'll find it's merely militant. He never really meets you with it. He's off on his hill, watching the battlefield the whole time. He will find a hardened pagan here. Judge Henry? Oh, no, the wild man you're taming brought you Kenilworth safe back. She was smooth. Oh, as for taming him, but don't you find him intelligent? Suddenly I somehow knew that she didn't want to tame him. But what did she want to do? The thought of her had made him blush this afternoon. No thought of him made her blush this evening. A great laugh from the rest of the company made me aware that the judge had consummated his tale of the sole survivor. And so, he finished, they all went off as mad as hops because it hadn't been a massacre. Mr. and Mrs. Ogden, they were the New Yorkers, gave this story much applause, and Dr. McBride, half a minute later, laid his ha-ha like a heavy stone upon the gaiety. "'I'll never be able to stand seven sermons,' said Miss Wood to me. "'Talking of massacres,' I now hastened to address the already saddened table. "'I have recently escaped one myself.' The judge had come to an end of his powers. "'Oh, tell us,' he implored. "'Seriously, sir, I think we grazed pretty wet tragedy, but your extraordinary man brought us out into comedy, safe and dry.' This gave me their attention, and from that afternoon in Dakota, when I had first stepped aboard the caboose, I told them the whole tale of my experience, how I grew immediately aware that all was not right, by the Virginians kicking the cook off the train, how, as we journeyed, the dark bubble of mutiny swelled hourly beneath my eyes, and how, when it was threatening I know not what explosion, the Virginian had pricked it with humor, so that it burst in nothing but harmless laughter. Their eyes followed my narrative, the New Yorkers, because such events do not happen upon the shores of the Hudson, Mrs. Henry, because she was my hostess, Miss Wood followed, for whatever her reasons were, I couldn't see her eyes, rather I felt her listening intently to the deeds and dangers of the man she didn't care to tame. 
but it was the eyes of the judge and the missionary which I saw riveted upon me indeed until the end, and they forthwith made plain their quite dissimilar opinions. Judge Henry struck the table lightly with his fist. I knew it! And he leaned back in his chair with a face of contentment. He had trusted his man, and his man had proved worthy. Pardon me, Dr. McBride had a manner of saying, pardon me, which rendered forgiveness well-nigh impossible. The judge waited for him. Am I to understand that these, uh, cowboys attempted to mutiny, and were discouraged in this attempt upon finding themselves less skillful at lying than the man they had plotted to depose? I began an answer. It was other qualities, sir, that happened to be revealed and asserted by what you call his lying that, and what am I to call it if it is not lying? A competition in deceit in which, I admit, he outdid them. It's their way to, pardon me, their way to lie? They bow down to the greatest in this? Oh, said Miss Wood in my ear, give him up. The judge took a turn. Well, doctor, he seemed to stick here. Mr. Ogden handsomely assisted him. You've said the word yourself, doctor. It's the competition, don't you see? The trial of strength by no matter what test. Yes, said Miss Wood unexpectedly. And it wasn't that George Washington couldn't tell a lie. He just wouldn't. I'm sure if he'd undertaken to, he'd have told a much better one than Cornwall's. Ha, ha, madam, you draw an ingenious subtlety from your books. It's all plain to me, Ogden pursued. The men were morose. This foreman was in the minority. He cajoled them into a bout of tall stories, and told the tallest himself. And when they found they had swallowed it whole, well, it would certainly take the starch out of me, he concluded. I couldn't be a serious mutineer after that. Dr. McBride now sounded his strongest bass. Pardon me. I cannot accept such a view, sir. There is a levity abroad in our land which I must deplore. No matter how leniently you may try to put it, in the end we have the spectacle of a struggle between men where lying decides the survival of the fittest. Better, far better, if it was to come, that they had shot honest bullets. There are worse evils than war. The doctor's eye glared righteously about him. None of us, I think, trembled, or, if we did, it was with emotions other than fear. Mrs. Henry at once introduced the subject of trout-fishing, and thus happily removed us from the edge of whatever sort of precipice we seemed to have approached for Dr. McBride had brought his rod. He dilated upon this sport with fervor, and we assured him that the streams upon the west slope of the Bowleg Mountains would afford him plenty of it. Thus we ended our meal in carefully preserved amity. End of chapter 19 Chapter 20 The Judge Ignores Particulars "'Do you often have these visitations?' Ogden inquired of Judge Henry. Our host was giving us whiskey in his office, and Dr. McBride, 
while we smoked apart from the ladies, had repaired to his quarters in the foreman's house previous to the service which he was shortly to hold. The judge laughed. They come now and then through the year. I like the bishop to come, and the men always like it, but I fear our friend will scarcely please them so well. You don't mean they'll—oh, no, they'll keep quiet. The fact is, they have a good deal better manners than he has, if he only knew it. They'll be able to bear him. But as for any good he'll do— I doubt if he knows a word of science, said I, musing about the doctor. Science? He doesn't know what Christianity is yet. I've entertained many guests, but none— The whole secret, broke off Judge Henry, lies in the way you treat people. As soon as you treat men as your brothers, they are ready to acknowledge you, if you deserve it, as their superior. That's the whole bottom of Christianity, and that's what our missionary will never know." There was a somewhat heavy knock at the office door, and I think we all feared it was Dr. McBride. But when the judge opened, the Virginian was standing there in the darkness. "'So,' the judge opened the door wide. He was very hearty to the man he had trusted. "'You're back at last!' "'I came to report.' While they shook hands, Ogden nudged me. "'That the fellow?' I nodded. "'Fellow who kicked the cook off the train?' I again nodded, and he looked at the Virginian, his eye and his stature. Judge Henry, properly democratic, now introduced him to Ogden. The New Yorker also meant to be properly democratic. You're the man I've been hearing such a lot about. But familiarity is not equality. Then I expect you have the advantage of me, sir, said the Virginian, very politely. Shall I report tomorrow? His grave eyes were on the judge again. Of me he had taken no notice. He had come as an employee to see his employer. Yes, yes, I'll want to hear about the cattle tomorrow. But step inside a moment now. There's a matter. The Virginian stepped inside and took off his hat. Sit down. You had trouble. I've heard something about it, the judge went on. The Virginian sat down, grave and graceful. But he held the brim of his hat all the while. He looked at Ogden and me, and then back at his employer. There was reluctance in his eye. I wondered if his employer could be going to make him tell his own exploits in the presence of us outsiders, and there came into my memory the Bengal tiger at a trained animal show I had once seen. "'You had some trouble,' repeated the judge. "'Well, there was a time when they maybe wanted to have notions. They're good boys,' and he smiled a very little. Contentment increased in the judge's face. Trampas a good boy, too? But this time the Bengal tiger did not smile. He sat with his eye fastened on his employer. The judge passed rather quickly on to his next point. You've brought them all back, though, I understand, safe and sound, without a scratch? The Virginian looked down at his hat, then up again at the judge, mildly. I had to part with my cook. There was no use. Ogden and myself exploded. Even upon the embarrassed Virginian a large grin slowly forced itself. "'I guess you know about it,' he murmured, and he looked at me with a sort of reproach. 
He knew it was I who had told tales out of school. "'I only want to say,' said Ogden conciliatingly, "'that I know I couldn't have handled those men.' The Virginian relented. "'You never tried, sir.' The judge had remained serious, but he showed himself plainly more and more contented. "'Quite right,' he said. "'You had to part with your cook. When I put a man in charge, I put him in charge. I don't make particulars my business. They're to be always his. Do you understand?' "'Thank you.' The Virginian understood that his employer was praising his management of the expedition. But I don't think he at all discerned, as I did presently, that his employer had just been putting him to a further test, had laid before him the temptation of complaining of a fellow workman and blowing his own trumpet, and was delighted with his reticence. He made a movement to rise. "'I haven't finished,' said the judge. "'I was coming to the matter. There's one particular, since I do happen to have been told. I fancy Trampas has learned something he didn't expect.' This time the Virginian evidently did not understand any more than I did. One hand played with his hat, mechanically turning it round. The judge explained. I mean about Roberts. A pulse of triumph shot over the Southerner's face, turning it savage for that fleeting instant. He understood now, and was unable to suppress this much answer. But he was silent. You see, the judge explained to me, I was obliged to let Roberts, my old foreman, go last week. His wife could not have stood another winter here, and a good position was offered to him near Los Angeles. I did see. I saw a number of things. I saw why the foreman's house had been empty to receive Dr. McBride and me. And I saw that the judge had been very clever indeed for I had abstained from telling any tales about the present feeling between Trampas and the Virginian, but he had divined it. Well enough for him to say that particulars were something he let alone, he evidently kept a deep eye on the undercurrents at his ranch. He knew that in Roberts Trampas had lost a powerful friend. And this was what I most saw, this final fact, that Trampas had no longer any intervening shield, he and the Virginian stood indeed man to man. And so, the judge continued, speaking to me, here I am at a very inconvenient time without a foreman, unless, I caught the twinkle in his eye before he turned to the Virginian, unless you're willing to take the position yourself, will you? I saw the Southerner's hand grip his hat as he was turning it round. He held it still now, and his other hand found it and gradually crumpled the soft crown in. It meant everything to him. Recognition, higher station, better fortune, a separate house of his own, and, perhaps, one step nearer to the woman he wanted. I don't know what words he might have said to the judge had they been alone, but the judge had chosen to do it in our presence, the whole thing from beginning to end. The Virginian sat with the damp coming out on his forehead, and his eyes dropped from his employers. "'Thank you,' was what he managed at last to say. "'Well, now I'm greatly relieved,' exclaimed the judge, rising at once. He spoke with haste and lightly. "'That's excellent. I was in something of a hole. 
he said to Ogden and me, and this gives me one thing less to think of. Saves me a lot of particulars, he jocosely added to the Virginian, who was now also standing up. Begin right off. Leave the bunk-house. The gentleman won't mind you sleeping in your own house. Thus he dismissed his new foreman gaily. But the new foreman, when he got outside, turned back for one gruff word. I'll try to please ye. That was all. He was gone in the darkness. But there was light enough for me, looking after him, to see him lay his hand on a shoulder-high gate and vault it as if he had been the wind. Sounds of cheering came to us a few moments later from the bunk-house. Evidently he had begun right away, as the judge had directed. He had told his fortune to his brother cowpunchers, and this was their answer. "'I wonder if Trampas is shouting, too,' inquired Ogden. "'Hm,' said the judge. "'That is one of the particulars I wash my hands of.' I knew that he entirely meant it. I knew, once his decision taken of appointing the Virginian his lieutenant for good and all, that, like a wise commander-in-chief, he would trust his lieutenant to take care of his own business. "'Well,' Ogden pursued with interest, "'haven't you landed Trampas plump at his mercy?' The phrase tickled the judge. "'That is where I've landed him,' he declared. "'And here is Dr. McBride.' End of chapter 20